Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Eric McTaxis is with us again after joining us last year to discuss his excellent book on the end of atheism. Uh, He is actually one of the most active uh, writers, speakers, and commentators in the United States today, and he has found the time to write another book, a timely volume entitled Letter to the American Church. That's our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Metaxas. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. Uh, First of all, a, a side question. What is Socrates in the city, and how can people find out about it? Well, I don't like to talk about it publicly. Socrates in the city is a UFO cult, and uh, (laughs) people aren't supposed to know about it, and it's embarrassing uh, that you brought it up. I don't know what to say, except the mothership will come uh, and uh, take us back whenever uh, whenever they decide, but we are prepared. Okay, I got to get serious. No, Socrates in the city is something I've been doing (laughs) for 22 years. Basically, uh, it's a forum. Uh, Many, many, many first things uh, readers are familiar with it. We usually do it at the Union League Club, but if you go to SocratesInTheCity.com, you can see that we have had a vast array of guests. Normally, I interview them. Uh, Some names uh, will be familiar. Others won't. I had Andrew Claven recently, uh, but I had Father Newhouse uh, Chuck Colson, uh, uh, my goodness, uh, really some extraordinary, extraordinary uh, guests, and, and I continue to do so. And people are, of course, welcome to come. Uh, just go to SocratesInTheCity.com. But it's it's a beautiful evening in a beautiful venue. Usually they're in New York at the Union League Club. I've done them around the, the country, uh, even out of the country. Um, I've done them in Oxford, England. But normally it's at the Union League Club. And uh, we have had, uh, my goodness, so many. Um, some of my favorites, of course, are um, Dame Alice von Hildebrand, who I had a couple of times. I could just die thinking about how wonderful that woman uh, was to speak with. Uh, and um, uh, and lots of others with whom you'd all, with whom your readers would be familiar. The great Thomas Howard, who was a dear friend. And just uh, tons and tons of great thinkers, and, and uh, I had the fun of talking to them. Yeah. SocratesInTheCity.com. Yeah. Correct? Okay. Okay. Yes. All right, to the book. To the book. You begin with a forceful provocation, the fact that the American church's, quote, silence in the face of evil. What is going on? What is the evil afoot? What is the evil afoot? What is the uh, special malice that, that, is, that is hitting us today? 
I know that's a joke question because <laughs> anyone with eyes to see understands that everywhere you look, you see madness uh, and evil. It is an astonishing thing that in the United States of America, um, we have come to a place where people pretend to be serious about things like uh, the idea that there are more than two genders and the idea that we need to force that crazy idea on our children, uh, the idea that having actual borders is, is a bad and hateful idea, uh, the idea that globalist Marxism uh, is a good thing, that authoritarian big state government uh, is a good thing. Everywhere we look, we see these kinds of forces uh, trying to push us around, and it falls uniquely to the church to speak against these things. And the church now, uh, largely as uh, in Germany in the early 30s, uh, is really blind to the looming horror, pretends that it's uh, it'll go away, uh, pretends that it's a fad. Um, that it would be wonderful if Hitler had been a, a five-year fad. Uh, unfortunately, um, the church was silent and, as I said, blind and, and deaf really to what was happening and allowed evil to come in. Uh, that is what I see happening uh, in the United States of America. And the, the, the principal excuses, the reason I wrote the book Letter to the American Church is that the excuses are almost identical. It's hmm. this ridiculous idea that uh, Christians are somehow not supposed to be involved in politics or anything outside the building where they worship on Sunday morning if they do. That is just horrible theology. It is fundamentally unbiblical. And it led to the nightmare uh, of, of the Nazis triumphing and doing things that m most of us think, well, that that's just an outlier. That doesn't happen again in history. But it's happened more than once. And the parallels to the German church, to the silence of the German church, are particularly uh, apt uh, for where we are now in America. And one, one another, we'll talk about the German analogy, parallel. Uh, of the really the thir the early 30s is is where you're you're really focusing and right. but the 1980s also plays a role in the church's timidity on a lot of these issues because you say there's sort of a lingering is it a lingering embarrassment or, yeah. or disquiet over the yeah. moral majority engagement it's political it's political yeah. engagement of the 80s and they they don't like that yeah well i mean it's it's very similar to when people just think Donald Trump is tacky, so I will let Hillary Clinton be president. I mean, it's not really logical. It's like saying, oh, the, the people who who were kind of, you know, banging the drum for Reagan and family values, they're tacky. I want to be with the cool kids. Well, here's the problem. Uh, the, the, the cool kids uh, let, uh, you know, the idea that America is a special and beautiful idea that uh, we are privileged to live in a country like this. They, they let those ideas go by the wayside. They let a lot of other things that are true go by the wayside. In other words, you've got to understand what is right and true and fight for it. And just because some people got it wrong or they did it in a way that you found tacky or embarrassing doesn't allow you uh, a pass. We, we don't get to say, you know what, uh, somebody, you know, tells me that... Uh, we should just 
not at all be involved in politics. The church should just be preaching the quote-unquote gospel. This is the preposterous thing that you keep hearing, as, as though it were possible to just preach the gospel. What does that even mean? Jesus didn't do that. So the people who are morally posturing and saying that we ought to do that, they, they are... They don't say it out loud, but they think that they're holier than Jesus, that Jesus was kind of tacky in calling out the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and it was, you know, it was a little bit of his to toxic masculinity, you know, that that's the way men behaved back then. But today we know that we're just supposed to kind of roll over and uh, let authoritarian government destroy our children's lives and, and push transgender ideology and push Marxist ideology and critical race theory and on and on and on. And that we as Christians have no role in that. And that there are, of course, many uh, Christians who do have different brands of that theology. Some of it is pure fatalism. They say, listen, America's being judged. Let's go to the caves. Uh, hmm. Let's forget about winning. Let's forget about fighting. Who cares? It's over. We're being judged. We deserve to be judged. Um if slavery were an issue in America, or if the slave trade were an issue, and it was in the day of Wilberforce, and you would sit on your hands and say, listen, that's been decided. I just want to have a nice life. I'll go to church on Sunday morning, but I don't want to get involved in that battle. You would be thought of by most of us today as a pig and a coward, a hypocrite. Well, that's what's happening today. A lot of people are just saying, you know, these issues, it's been decided. Uh, who, who am I? We're not going to win even if we try to fight. It's not worth it. That's not the voice of God. That's the voice of the devil. And it's uh, it's a siren song that, that the church has often listened to throughout history, listened to very, very keenly in the early 30s in Germany when there was a very real opportunity for the church to... Uh, because it had great cultural power to fight against the evil of the Nazis. But they hesitated and hesitated, and by the time they understood what was happening, it was too late. They had already been pushed out of power to the extent that there was no chance for them to do anything. And so the reason I am uh, sounding this alarm in Letter to the American Church is because I know how keen these parallels are. It is astonishing how keen the parallels are. And if we think we're somehow, we would get a pass You'd have to ask, well, why didn't the Germans get a pass? They didn't get a pass. They unleashed hell on earth by their silence and their inactivity. You know, you go back to another another historical touchstone, and I didn't know about this. I'd never read about this before. What was the amendment to the U.S. tax code that Senator Lyndon Johnson proposed in 1954? Yeah, one of the most corrupt politicians in the history of the United States, Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, was able in 1954, and of course I, I mentioned this in the book Letter to the American Church, but he was able to um, basically say, uh, you know, I don't like a lot of what these churches are saying about me. Um, we'll fix them. We'll put an amendment in the tax code that says if they get political in their pulpits, we'll remove their tax-exempt status. That's all it took. The churches rolled over in 1954. They should have raised holy hell over that. Of course. That is the most egregious offense against liberty, against religious liberty, against the, the, the central ideas of the American experiment. But they didn't. They let him get away with it. And it basically found its way into the bloodstream of the modern American church so that everybody knows somehow that, oh, we're not supposed to be political. And I mean, what, what, what really astonishes me is it took uh, Donald Trump 
to bring this to the attention of the evangelical church. I, was, I think I was in the room in Manhattan when he was meeting with somebody who said, yeah, I was wondering why whenever I bring this up, pastors get so nervous. And, they, and he says, it's the Johnson Amendment. I had not heard of the Johnson Amendment in the summer of 2016 when, when Donald Trump, of all people, brought this up. And I thought, how shameful that we in the church have accepted this idea uh, and that it takes, uh, you know, a, a thrice married New York real estate developer to bring it to, to the attention of the church, that we have bought this idea that we've allowed ourselves to be silenced, uh, basically for a mess of pottage, for a, a tax exempt status. We ought never to have accepted that. We should have given tremendous pushback on that, but we've internalized it. And lo, seven decades later, we find ourselves being pushed around very similarly to the way the Nazis were pushing the, the church around in the early 30s and generally accepting it, which is sinful and disgraceful. I, 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 when I read this, I, I too felt, yes. Why the hell do priests, pastors have to be muzzled here? They can't open their mouths here? I mean, I, I just wonder why more Republican politicians you know, pressured by by churches. I mean, I, I guess you're right. It's in the bloodstream now. It's just sort of assumed in in the church. They run away. They're Look, scared. I, would, I was guilty of this for years myself. I just thought, oh, okay, that's the you know that's the rule. That's the way it is. And 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 once the the Johnson Amendment came uh, into my purview, I thought to myself, wait a second, the idea is offensive. And how have we accepted this? I mean, listen, if Stalin is running for president, okay, or, or Satan, or Adolf Hitler, or, do you think that it would be it would be possible for me not to be political from behind a pulpit? Don't it, wouldn't it be the most shameful thing in the world if a pastor or a priest or a minister were to be, quote-unquote, unpolitical, non-political, apolitical, uh, somehow saying, well, we're just going to, we're not going to pick sides on this. Sometimes things are black and white. And, and this preposterous idea that we've got to stay in our little theological lane, that is the voice of the devil. That is not the, that's not what the scripture says. Uh, it's not how the church is meant to live. We are meant to live utterly freely and to speak whatever we think is right and true uh, with no fear, uh, except fear of God when we don't speak those things or when we say something cavalierly. So, of course, we're not to make an idol of politics. But the idea that somehow that's off limits is simply preposterous, and and we need to uh, push back hard against it. And of course, many people, the moment you do, they will accuse you of, you know, uh, Christian nationalism or wanting to bring a theocracy to America, which is a joke. That I don't know uh, any Christians that want that, and it seems to me not consonant with Scripture or with the Constitution, so I just don't see it at all, but people will use that, you know, cudgel to shut people up. And often, mm -hmm. almost always, uh, people allow themselves to be shut up instantly. Oh, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to be political. Uh, as though you could be not political when you have these sacred issues uh, in the middle of public life, uh, whether the, the, the unborn, uh, the, the idea that there, there's such a thing as men and women, um, all of these things come into the purview of our faith. And we ought to be speaking up about it. And many decades of not speaking up about it has led us to this impossible moment. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning. 
all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Well, one thing, when you go back to the German situation, you present to people today, and I want to be, be clear that there is a lot in the book that is historical detail and context that give people a different reflection, possibility of a different reflection on the current situation. And one example that you give of, hey, the entire church wasn't silent. There was a guy named Pastor Bonhoeffer who said, well, give us an example of what he said. Well, well, you, you mentioned two things. You mentioned his his Reformation Sunday sermon in November 1932, and also he gave a radio address two days after Hitler came to power. Well, what did he What did he say in one or both of those? Well, I mean, there, there were many, many things that he said, and he wasn't the only one. Look, I want to be clear. There were 18, I, I wrote a you know 600-page biography of Bonhoeffer, which was extraordinarily favorably reviewed by uh, Archbishop uh, Chaput uh, in the pages of, of First Things. Uh, and, and it's because I wrote that book that I understand what happened in Germany, that the church was largely silent. It wasn't all silent. You had Bonhoeffer, and, and let's, let's say there, uh, there's a chapter in my book, Letter to the American Church, which is titled 12,000 Pastors. And it's titled that because there were 18,000 Lutheran pastors. I'm only talking about the Lutheran church in Germany. 18,000 Lutheran pastors who, um, at the time, by 1935... Only 3,000 of those 18,000 stood very strongly with the Barman Declaration against the Nazis trying to take over the German Lutheran Church. The Nazis were absolutely trying to take it over, make it a state church, and import their own uh, thinking into the church, which of course destroys the church from within. 3,000 by 1935 were standing strongly against it. 3,000 were very pro-Nazi of these 18,000. In the middle were the 12,000, and these are the ones who decided what happened. They said, we're going to take a pass. We don't want to be political. Romans 13, it's open and shut. We're just going to hang back and see which way the wind blows. We're not going to support the 3,000 heroes who have signed the Barman Declaration and who are still standing by it. We don't want to get into trouble. So you had many who were extremely heroic, but the majority said, we're just going to stay here in the middle and we're not going to be one of those hotheads, you know, because we find, yeah, we find that, you know, th that uh, that's kind of tacky. We want to we want to be respectable and uh, we want people to come to our churches and we, we don't want to be divisive. And it's because of those 12,000 in the middle that what happened happened. And so you say, what did Bonhoeffer said? Uh, Effectively, he said the church is the conscience of the state. It is the duty of the church. And of course, not just the Lutheran church. Anybody who dares to claim, I am a Christian, has a duty uh, to speak truth, not just uh, to believe it in your own head, but to live it out and to uh, try to affect the culture around you, whether through politics or any other way. We are blessed in America to have the ability to be self-governing. Uh, it's not the first century uh, uh, in the Roman Empire. We have the ability to do this. 
And uh, Bonhoeffer was saying to Germans that this is our duty as Christians to push back against the, the wickedness of what was obviously the, uh, the atheistic, uh, satanic, Nazi doctrine. And when they didn't do that, when they hesitated and hesitated and hesitated, they opened the door such that the authoritarian Nazis were able to take over and crush the church and silent, silence voices of dissent. That's basically what's happening now because of the silence um, of church leaders, uh, whether Catholic uh, or evangelical or other. On, on that score, you, you talk about a phenomenon, uh, you cite the phenomenon of, quote, the spiral of silence. Yeah. What is that? Well, what it means is that the less you speak, the harder it becomes to speak. The more you speak, the easier it becomes to speak. So, uh, I mean, you, you've seen this uh, in the gay rights movement. You've seen this in the abortion world. They, you know, they say, shout your abortion. The, the more you push, you normalize it. So if you are silent uh, when same-sex marriage uh, uh, comes up, or if you're silent when the Johnson Amendment comes up in 1954, or you're silent when any of these horrible things are coming down, 1973, Roe v. Wade, s silence begets silence, because if, 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 if many people are quiet, it makes it harder for the neighbor to speak up, because you say, well, he's not saying anything, I better not say anything, whereas if someone speaks up, it encourages people to speak up. So that's the question, is each of us has a voice. If you use your voice self-sacrificially and live out your faith publicly, you encourage all those around you who aren't sure what to do, you encourage them that, you know what, I was thinking the same thing. Maybe I can speak up. Maybe I can say that too. Uh, and there's so many people that are thinking what many of us are thinking, but they're afraid to speak. We need to encourage them by speaking. The spiral of silence works in exactly the opposite way, and it's what happened in Germany and allowed the Nazis to take over, is that if a German said, you know what, I don't want to get in trouble, I'm going to keep my voice shut, that made it that much more difficult for your neighbor to speak up uh, or your relatives to speak up because they looked around, who else is speaking up? Nobody's speaking up. And yeah. so it has that spiral effect until eventually the entire culture is taken captive. You know, I've seen that phenomenon happen before where people who've been silent quite a bit, you get one person in the room to speak up forcefully. Suddenly, all these quiet people feel, uh, I, I, can, I can back this. Yeah, now, can, that they, you they, said it, now that you said it, I will just timidly raise my hand and I'll say, you know what, I, I agree with that. Well, yeah. that's, that's what happens. Yeah, it, it's something. It's something. So uh, another term that you bring up, that you derive from, from the past, what is, quote, cheap grace? That's Bonhoeffer's term. Uh, a lot of my book, Letter to the American Church, comes from Bonhoeffer and is about Bonhoeffer. And he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that, he talks about cheap, what he calls cheap grace and basically says that, uh, the, you know, the Lutherans were uh, sort of infamously talking about it's faith alone. It's faith alone. Uh, we're, we're covered by faith. To some extent, that's true. The problem is, is it real faith? In other words, if you believe in the grace of God, that is the grace of God that saves me from hell, uh, if, if I really believe that, it will be obvious in how I live my life. In other words, I can claim to have faith, but the question is, it, it, I was going to title Letter to the American Church, Faith Without Works is Dead, because Faith Without Works is Dead says that 
look, you can claim to have faith, but if, if you're not living it out, we understand you actually have no faith. You're just talking about it. And so I think that Bonhoeffer, when he said cheap grace, he was basically saying that the, all these Lutherans that are saying, we don't need to do anything, everything's fine, we're covered by grace. He was saying, that's wrong, that's wrong. If you understand the real grace of God, you're going to live your life dramatically differently. If you have some thin view of what grace is, that's cheap grace, it's not real grace, and it's shameful. Um, and so I, I talk about that and the idea also of, you know, faith that's not really faith. You claim to have faith, but God may have a different opinion based on how you live your life. Yeah. You say that many leaders shy away from controversy in politics because they believe it might turn off uh, parishioners, maybe moderate parishioners, or potential converts and, and interfere with, with their people's salvation. Right. Eric, is it possible that they're misconstruing that, that actually it might have the opposite effect, that their caution and shyness might do the same thing, might turn off a lot of people, especially young people, who want to have a forceful faith? Uh, I don't mention him in the book, but the Simpsons character, Ned Flanders, is a classic case of this. Uh, I think there are a lot of people that think somehow I'm supposed to be really nice and just agree with people and never be controversial, and that will lead people to faith. Now, look, uh, if that works, I'm all for it. The point is it doesn't work. It's not only not biblical, but it also doesn't work. People, when they see someone standing up for truth, when they see courage, that's attractive. Uh, and in a world such as we're living in today, uh, people are looking around at the madness in every direction and they're saying, "Does any is, is there such thing as truth? Does anybody believe in, in such thing as truth? Are they, are they willing to talk about it? Because if they are, I'm looking for help. I'm trying to raise my kids in the middle of this lunacy, uh, uh, in, in the middle of this economy, in the middle of this political situation. Um, it seems like madness has been unleashed uh, everywhere. Is there anyone who actually believes anything? Is there such a thing as truth? Those churches, and this is true, I, I can tell you from my experience over the last year, the churches that have been particularly bold in speaking about these things, in saying, by the way, we are not going to shut down our churches, you know, Governor Newsom, we, we, we yeah. dare you uh, to shut down our church because this is God's church. We're not going to do that. All of those churches that have been bold and heroic and that are willing to talk about all of these things you're not supposed to talk about have exploded in number. Their giving has tripled and quadrupled hmm. in every case. I was in a church in Colorado I'd never heard of. It was a huge church just like this. They told me the same story. Every church I seem to get invited to, they're telling me the same story. All the churches that have been exceedingly cautious, that have said, we don't want to be divisive. We don't want to be political. We don't want to be associated with like that tacky guy uh, who was president or those tacky evangelicals. Well, we just want to back away from those from those loud mouths and be respectable, those kinds of churches are struggling to keep their doors open. Uh, so the irony is that if you care about evangelism, it's precisely the opposite of what you think. If, if you want to attract people to Jesus, talking about everything, by the way, God is the author of everything, of reality and of truth. And so the idea that you can kind of carve out this little little religious theological lane and stick to that is preposterous. It's, it's not right. Um, and so people who are trying to do that, trying to avoid controversy, uh, are finding themselves just 
you know, twisting, looking and looking for how can I be relevant? You know, how how skinny are my jeans? You know, yeah. how, what, what, what do I need to do to appeal to people that probably are mocking me behind my back for trying to appeal to them this way? You know, you, you, you want action, but you, you actually say that the first question for Christians facing an evil time is not what should we do, but rather, who do we say God is? That's the first question. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I think, you know, uh, I mean, bad theology, uh, let's be clear, it comes from the pit of hell, right? It's, this is not like a small problem. Um, so the question who God is, is God the loving father uh, that uh, sends his son to die for us because he loves us that much? Is, is, is that who God is? Or, or is God simply a moral policeman who says, better watch yourself, don't get in trouble, um, and I, uh, in, in one chapter in the book, I talk about the parable of the talents and the idea that th the servant who buries the talent has judged his master to be hateful. He, he basically hates his hateful master. And rather than wanting to do with the master's money, what he would do if it was his own money, uh, which is, you know, called loving someone doing unto them as you would have them do unto you. He buries the talent because he says, I don't like this guy. And if I make a mistake, if I lose his money, I'll just get in trouble. So I'm just going to bury the talent. And it really forces us to see that Jesus is saying, you don't have three options. You have two options. You either love me or you hate me. This idea that you can be somehow neutral, that you can just give me what's due to me, uh, you know, pay your tithe, attend mass, just just do those things. But God is not fooled. If you don't love him, Jesus says you basically hate him and you will be judged for hating him. And so I think a lot of these people trying to take this safe middle path, this kind of religious path, um, they are, I, I say in the book, it's like, it's like in Germany, if the Gestapo were to come to your door and say, are you hiding a Jew? And you would say, well, uh, I don't want to lie. I could get in trouble with God. God's a moral policeman. So I'm just going to say, yes, I'm hiding a Jew. Help yourself to the Jew. Torture and kill the Jew. And then I'm justified before God. That person is indescribably selfish, is not in line with God's will, and has completely misunderstood the nature and character of God. And if, if you simply think kind of going along and staying out of trouble is God's mandate— you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping the devil. And uh, I, I can't put it more starkly than that. But that's what Jesus makes clear uh, throughout the Gospels. And I think sometimes, you know, we drift along and think, well, there's some third safe way. There's a religious way. I don't need to be all in. I don't need to be a fanatic. Uh, and uh, that's simply not the case. There are people dying for their faith while we have this conversation. And God expects us who claim to be Christians, to believe that he defeated death on the cross and that we are utterly free. We ought not to fear death, to fear being canceled, but be completely free to live out our faith. That's what he calls us to do. There's more to the book, including uh, a moving short section on, on Bonhoeffer's decision to leave the safety of the United States in 1939 and return to Germany. And, and you, you, you can read the book to find out what happened there. But for now, the book is Letter to the American Church. Eric McTaxis, thank you for joining us. My privilege. Thank you, Mark.
And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.